Welcome to the Particle Podcast, where we talk about science and the people who just love it. My name is Rose, and I believe the movie Shark Boy and Lava Girl deserves an Oscar. Combining two of those elements is Charlotte Burke Manis, Shark Girl and Scientist. She joined us on the Particle Podcast to talk about conservation, shark marketing, and being an extrovert. I think it went swimmingly. To start off with, what do you do? What do I do? I ask myself that question as well. (laughs) I am a marine biologist who specialises in sharks. So I am a researcher. At the moment, I'm at the University of Western Australia, and I'm I'm currently finalising my PhD research. And that involves, for me, I look at where sharks are, why they're there, whether we're protecting them, and how that's changed over time. So that's quite a big scope of giving you right there. Yeah. Is it something that you've always wanted to study? Absolutely. Absolutely. When I was little, I remember going to the beach and just being fascinated by the ocean. And then as I got older, I remember learning more about dolphins and whales and turtles and I was interested, but it wasn't until I found sharks. And the more I learned about them, the more fascinating they became. And you get to see the other side besides what you see in the media and in Jaws, of course. You can't talk about sharks without that coming up. But they're just absolutely amazing creatures. Do you remember the point where you thought, oh, yes, that's the animal or the marine animal that I'd like to work with? I do think it was probably when I first saw a shark in the wild. I'm actually from Queensland, so, you know, the waters are warmer over there and we have sort of smaller sharks that you can go swimming with and I remember just I think we're on holidays we're just doing a snorkeling trip and I remember seeing a little reef shark and as it flicked away from me I was just fascinated. Is swimming with sharks not scary? Well when we talk about sharks there's over 500 species. Whoa. So yeah so if you're talking about swimming with whale sharks they're a very big animal obviously they're the biggest fish in the ocean and if you respect them and obviously you give them their space it can be an amazing experience you can just go snorkeling with them and they will glide next to you so it can be it's incredible i have a question that actually came from some of the rest of the particle team and you've segued into it so nicely (laughs) what does a shark feel like what does a shark feel like well i can actually answer that their skin is quite rough sort of akin to sandpaper, sort of wet sandpaper, but they also have a sort of a, I don't want to say slimy, sort of a a mucus layer on it or something. So it's sort of like this sandpaper that's got something on it. So to answer that question, I have to say they, they do feel like sandpaper. So it sounds like every kid's dream to get to work in a marine environment and swim as sharks and have this adventure. But are there downsides to working in this area? (laughs) Well, I have to emphasise it's more staples and paper clips than swimming with sharks. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was lucky enough to spend about four months doing research, doing underwater filming and doing a bit of tagging, a bit of genetics work, isotopes looking at what they eat, their diet and things like that, looking at their behaviour. 
But for every day you spend in the field, you're looking at probably at least a month in the office, sorting out the data, looking at the samples. At the moment, I'm doing statistical analysis. So once you've got where the sharks are or once you've got your data, you've got to analyze it. And that's when the story really comes out. And we managed to tease it out by looking at the different variables around it, by looking at different factors. It depends on what you're looking at. So I am driven by conservation of sharks and learning more about them. And that keeps me going. But I think if you were thinking to be a marine biologist or a shark scientist because you wanted to spend all day every day in the water, you're probably better off as a tour guide or something like that. When you study sharks, I'll I'll keep saying it broadly at this stage. No, most people do. Yeah. In your study and, and throughout your career, do you largely study them ex situ? Are there any times where you have them in a lab or anything like that? What's the lifestyle like? It depends on the species and it depends what you're looking at. I have friends of mine that have looked at, for example, the hearing of sharks or do sharks sleep or the smell, how sharks smell. And to do that, you can keep smaller species in a tank and you can observe them and you can study them that way. But I study oceanic species and it's pretty hard to keep a mako in a tank or an oceanic yes. white tip. So we do rely on where they're seen, where they're caught, or when we actually go and film them or tagging, things like that. So it's a bit more difficult to keep one of these big guys in an aquarium. And you, you wouldn't want to anyway. These They cross oceans. The tank's not the place for them. Yeah, absolutely. You've, you've given me a question by answering. Question. <laughs> yeah. Do sharks sleep? That is actually a topic of a PhD that's going on at the moment. That's great. Oh, it seems like such a simple question and then no surprise, it's never that easy. I know. And that's also what fascinates me. When I started learning about sharks, I was like, oh, we would we would know so much about them, you know, especially white sharks. And they're always in the newspaper. We see them off the beaches. But once you start learning more about them, there are huge gaps in our knowledge. Do we know if sharks have emotions? That's a very human-centric. I'm sure there's a more scientific word for that (laughs) way to look at it. We do know that certain species are more gregarious than others and more social than others, that some individuals, if they are put in a tank or a cage, will actively seek out other individual sharks while other sharks in that same area will actively avoid other sharks of of the same species. So it sort of depends how you look at it. Do they have emotions? Not in the way we do, not the way mammals do, but they do have certain preferences that individuals do exhibit. Are they quite social? Like with dolphins as a comparison, we see them as these very social animals, or at least that's the way they're perceived by (laughs) the general public perhaps. Are sharks similar in that behaviour? Again, it depends on the species. If you sort of look at some sharks at night, especially the smaller reef sharks, you see that they do sort of tend to group. And a group of sharks is called a shiver. So we do have a word for it. So some of them are, but when you get the bigger species, that they tend to be more solo creatures, you would say. So again, when you're talking about 500 different species, it sort of depends on what you're looking at. But they're not all solo ones. Some of them are more social than others. And also, if you think about it, bigger sharks and other animals eat smaller sharks. So like for everything that's tiny, there's safety in numbers. Do we have a lot of uh, shark diversity in Australia? 
Yes, we do. We actually have a great diversity of sharks in Australia's waters. And what are usually the biggest threats? You said conservation is something that drives you. What are some of these threats that are threatening sharks? There's quite a few threats for sharks at the moment. We've got, there's, they're losing their habitat. So the places that they like to live are being encroached upon by us or by pollution or by plastics, things like that. We've also got climate change is impacting them in studies that we're seeing at the moment, as well as they're being fished. They're being fished for their flesh and also, also for their fins. So there's quite a few things out there that sharks have to avoid to reach a ripe old age. Why do you think people should care about conservation, not even just of sharks, but of marine life? People should care about conservation of marine life because even though we like to think that we're top of the food chain, food web, we are actually part of this food web. We don't live in isolation. If you like to eat seafood, if you like to eat tuna, if you like to see coral reefs, these are all part of the marine ecosystem. And an intact ecosystem is one that's healthier, which will also benefit us. And sharks are part of that ecosystem. So are dolphins you mentioned before, so are whales. And if you remove something from that food web, it will collapse. And those are the implications we're just starting to see now. So if everyone cares about the ocean and cares about sharks, as well as other animals, it actually to put it selfishly, it actually benefits ourselves as well. And sometimes that's what people need to hear, to care about <laughs> conservation, that it affects them. Yeah, it is a message that does tend to get through. You could say, you know, you should protect sharks. And if you do that, you're, you're up against jaws, you're up against that mm. sort of media. But if, you know, people can see that it does benefit them as well. And the more people that I think see sharks and learn about them, learn that they are not these menacing machines that are out to get us. They're actually fascinating. Yeah, well, that's something that I wanted to ask about. Do you think the representation of sharks in pop culture means that they're represented and potentially have a bit of a bad rap? Oh, definitely. Sharks do get a bad rap. They need a new PR manager. <laughs> <laughs> what a cool job. I know, I'll take it. I was actually thinking just from what I was looking on the internet, obviously, I like sharks, I, I follow what's going on and there's a couple of shark movies coming out and there's also a shark video game I saw and I can't remember exactly what it's called. It's called something like Maneater or something. Oh, my goodness. I know. So there's this constant onslaught of that, that as a conservationist, as a shark scientist, you've got to find a sort of way to segue into what people want to talk about and get the conservation angle across. If you were going to be the new PR management for sharks, what would be <laughs> some of the things that you think people should know? What should people know, as well as what we've discussed, that, you know, they can be social, they have preferences. We might not say that they make friends, but they do prefer, they do have these individual preferences. And that's something that we do just tend to think we have as mammals or dogs that we like, we think that they have, but there's actually a lot more to them. And also the deep sea species. And we've got all of those over 500 species of sharks, but we've also got their relatives when we talk about rays and skates. To explain a little bit more, rays and skates are closely related to sharks. Stingrays, for example, are a type of ray. Both rays and skates are made up of cartilage and the chimeras, which are the deep sea sharks as well. So there's such a great diversity that you can just keep discovering more and more about them every day. It's not just Sharknado and Jaws. 
<laughs> no, no. <laughs> Although the big guys with the teeth do tend to get the press. Yes, that's very true. They, but you know, it's, it's a great picture. Before we started recording, we were talking about our struggles as extroverts <laughs> during the <laughs> pandemic, being stuck inside. And I know. I know that I love working in a team, and I always am interested in other scientists. Do you get to work in a team? I'm actually part of a lab with other PhDs and uh, my advisors. So we do have that. I also have an office that I work in, which has got other PhDs and they're not necessarily marine biologists. A lot of them are looking at insects or other things like that. So we do have that group within the university I'm in, but also we have, yeah, have, what do we call it? Um, shark student socials i just say so we have a group in perth where those of us that do study sharks get together and have catch-ups and everything so oh i know we do our best to keep in touch and i just talk about sharks to most people but whether <laughs> they pretend to be interested hopefully some of them actually are <laughs> yeah i like to think so i like to think so too do you think that kind of environment of getting to talk even more in a casual context about what you study is beneficial to the research itself? Absolutely, I do think so. I've just been chatting to some people and, you know, what do you do? And, of course, I'm very enthusiastic to talk about what I do. And at the end of it, people have said, oh, I, I didn't know that about sharks or I've never met a scientist before. Or sometimes it actually starts with I've never had the courage to ask but... And it's oh, cool. a question. And I was actually at the WA Museum and they had a predator versus prey exhibit and I was one of the specialists that was in a panel there for the public. And afterwards, a little girl came up to me and she actually said, I've never seen a lady talk about sharks before and I want to do Aww. that too. I know, Aww. I know. And that makes it all worthwhile. You hear things like that. And I often do Skypes or Zoom calls, things like that. And I talk to a lot of people, younger and older, but also I've noticed that a lot of the younger girls actually had a mother ask me if I would talk to her daughter, a friend of a friend of a friend. And afterwards, the, the little girl was just asking all questions, but it was questions like that, like, how could I do this? How do you find the day to day? Things that they said that they've never had anyone to ask before, and you don't really want to put that on the internet. So mm. I, I find it's really beneficial. For me and for them. What are some of the best or weirdest questions that you find kids or maybe even adults have asked you? <laughs> One that does come up a lot is Megalodon. Is what Meg is that? Oh, Megalodon is, you know, have you seen the movie The Meg? The no. ancient shark, the fossilised oh. shark, the huge, yes. yes. What is it? Um so many i think it's three or four times bigger than the great white or something like that don't quote me on that a lot larger than the modern great white yes and that does capture people's imaginations and there's always at least one is megalodon alive and then you go through say mm -hmm. it's not likely we would see whales that would have been eaten or we only find their teeth we don't see anything fresh like that next thing is what about the bottom of the mariana trench i say it's unlikely oh for the other reasons and then sometimes it's just like, okay, it's very, no, I haven't been to the Mariana Trench. No, <laughs> I, I haven't seen it myself, but no, it's Aww. very, it's like, okay, 
I like that they're dreaming. I like that they're really thinking that you specifically are going out and you found it and you know where it is. <laughs> I know. I, I take that. It's like, oh, thank you. You obviously think I'm quite smart. That can only be a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever doubted your choice of study and work pathway? <laughs> Yes, I have. At the moment, you're oh. talking to somebody who's about to submit the thesis for their PhD. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, not my big picture as in studying sharks and marine biology, but sometimes I wonder if this thesis was the best thing I have I could have been doing. Just mm. when you get bogged down in statistics and programming languages, but, you know, if it was easy we probably wouldn't be able to learn as much. But as to whether I doubt what I'm doing is what I should be doing, no, never, which I think is a luxury. Exactly. And it's it sounds like it's given you opportunities to travel and meet so many other people passionate about what you're passionate about. And that's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. There is um, some conferences we go to. There's international shark conferences, and it's really good to go and see there and then you see people that you've only read about before and you can chat to them. It's actually really supportive and a very friendly environment. Are there lots of people out there studying sharks? Yeah, there's quite a few. I think there yeah, definitely hundreds. I imagine there's a bit of a sense of camaraderie. There is, there is. And there's the sharks, which you typically think of as sharks again, and then there's the flat sharks, which are the rays. So there's there's a a large number of people that are involved and again it depends some people study the seamounts and how sharks interact with them and some people study the deep sea and sort of how other animals interact so there's a great variety of things you can do you don't just have to do biology there's oceanography there's all sorts of things that if you want to do marine biology that are open to you oh so there's more than one pathway into it absolutely what pathway did you choose I would say I went the academic pathway. I did my high school subjects to get into university, but I also, mine's a little different maybe. I also did a Bachelor of Arts in Mandarin Chinese. Oh, whoa. And then I lived in China for a few years too. What were you doing there? Well, the idea was to get fluent, but the more you learn Chinese, it's still quite difficult. So I got Mm -hmm. fluency in the end Um, and I really did enjoy it. It was a great experience living over there. And then I came back and did some more research and I was a consultant for a little while. So there's interesting. Yeah. And that's what I would definitely recommend is getting sort of more feathers in your cap, as it were, sort of getting different things that you can do, whether it's doing different programs like mapping or statistics or things like that, or speaking another language or being an expert in a certain area or a certain species, something that will help you have your niche and then you can grow upon that. When did you start getting into science communication? I honestly fell into science communication. It's just started with me chatting as I'm prone to do. And then gradually someone said, can you come and chat to a friend of mine's a teacher? Can I come chat at their school? And sure, I did a talk at the school. And then gradually you get more and more requests. And I do Skype for scientists. And now, yeah, I do a lot. I've just started up a web page and I've started doing Instagram and Twitter as ways to get the word out there. And it's just basically gone from there. How have you found the online science community? I find the online science community on Twitter to be 
very inspiring. There's a lot of people on there. You find out a lot about the science that's going on, a lot of the science communication, things like that. Um, but I haven't really accessed other avenues yeah. online. Something um, I'd like to get into. I should. It's a. I find that it's almost. It's both a bringer together of a lot of voices and people putting out information and science communication. But also, there's somehow so much it can it can feel like you get a little bit lost. Yes, there's a, there is a lot going on, and there's also obviously, as we know, a lot of misinformation out there. So that's why it is very yeah. important for people to be willing to talk about what they do. As I look at it, my scholarship is paid for by the taxpayer, mm. so I work for you. Yeah. <laughs> and so, if you have questions, I'd love to answer them. Answering all the weird shark questions. Oh yeah, the weirder the better. That's so good. That's good because we've got a few coming a little bit later. <laughs> I saw that you did some work with the Naked Scientists. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up right now. <gasps> I'm meant to be in Cambridge working oh. with the Naked Scientists for two months. That's I know I was awarded a, I was awarded a fully paid for two-month trip working with them and obviously they're aligned with the BBC and it will be amazing when I get to go. I realize there's yeah. other people that are missing out on a lot more than I am. So it's something that I'm really looking forward to doing in the near future, maybe next year, I imagine, when, when we can. So that's something I'm really looking forward to. I saw that you competed in FameLab. Yes. Can you explain what that is for anyone who hasn't heard about it before? FameLab is a global science communication competition where you're armed with nothing but your wits, as they say, no PowerPoint, no jargon. You basically have to get your message across in three minutes. And it's Whoa. to a general audience like your listeners. And so it really keeps us on our toes. We're used to relying on the PowerPoint presentations and you know our scientific words. So it's a really good experience to break that down. And this year was the first time ever they had it online. So it was basically mm. from my lounge room to yours. <laughs> what inspired you to get involved with it? I did the three-minute thesis okay. and I enjoyed that. And then this came up and I thought it would have some good training for me and a good experience and hopefully meet other people that are doing this and basically learn from the professionals how they do what they do because they obviously do it so well. Was it intimidating? It wasn't intimidating because it was all online. Ah, that helps. It was literally my iPhone on the table on a little stand and me standing with my shark, you know, my little shark toys to tell a story. Oh, how sweet. Yeah, if I had the chance to do it again, obviously I'd do it differently. But yeah, it was, it was a great experience and it was a learning curve for everyone, I think. No one really expected it to be like this. Yeah. So hopefully a little bit of sunshine in people's lives at that time. I've come armed with some questions from the rest of the Particle Podcast team that mm -hmm. we'd really like to ask you. So we're going to move through some of those. And I think what I might have to call a bit of a rapid fire random <laughs> questionnaire or something, we're going to need a better title than that. But I've got a whole okay. bunch that I'd love to work through. Yeah. Firstly, hammerhead sharks. Yes. Why are they built like that? Well, they actually have a bit of an advantage because, as you know, they have their cephalofoil, I think that's how you say it, across their, their wide, as you know, that they have their wide head. Mm. It's actually filled with an array of sensors. So they 
eat stingrays and they can find them on the ocean floor. And because they have basically this larger area with these sensors on it, they can find their prey more easily. And they almost have 360 degree vision as well. Oh my goodness. I know. So having your eyes sort of at the side of your head on the outside could actually be quite beneficial if that's what you do. Probably not so much What are much they fast. usually eating? It depends. Um, some of them eat other sharks. Some of them eat stingrays. They have a variety. Again, there's quite a few species of hammerheads. There's a scalloped hammerhead, the great hammerhead, just to name a few. If you could have any shark abilities, so something that a shark can Ooh. do, what would you like to be able to do? I would have to sort of follow on from what a lot of the students ask. I'd like to be able just to go down to the depths of the ocean and see what's down there, maybe even to the bottom, bottom of the Mariana Trench. It would make so many of those kids and adults <laughs> happy to know. <laughs> With a GoPro on my back, of course. <laughs> yes, good. Okay. What are some of the weirdest marine creatures you've ever come across or ones that maybe you've just heard about? Um, I'm actually really fascinated by octopus, I have to admit. And there's the deep sea, I think it's the, uh, the Dumbo octopus or something like that. If you watch Noah or their feeds, they often have these deep sea expeditions they're going on and you can watch it live. And they have all these incredible animals that they see. But there's also um, the deep sea fish, like sort of the blobfish and things like that, that we, we can't really study them up on the surface because they're used to this high gravity and so you sort of have to see them where they live to really see their behaviors and what they're doing so I think that's very fascinating are we able to how deep can we go in terms of studying marine life well we've gone to the bottom of the Mariana Trench so Which is so far yeah 12 <laughs> kilometers don't quote me on that I think it's it's, it's quite deep so and it dep again it depends on the research you're doing I know that there's some marine biologists that specialize on this deep zone and they have their submersibles that go down there, and then they do the filming. And we sort of tag sharks. And then when they go down to the depths, we have sensors that tell us depth and oxygen and temperature while they're down there. So we get a lot of information that way. Do you ever get jealous of other teams getting to do different research? Oh, always. <laughs> you always want to be where someone else is. Absolutely. Yeah. I was lucky enough to spend, as I said, about four months. And I spent quite a few months in the Chagos Archipelago which is literally wow. the middle of the Indian Ocean. And that was an amazing experience. What was it like? Like, what did you do while you were there? Um, looking at the sharks and seeing their behaviour. So we did underwater filming, diving with, with the cameras to see the bottom of the reef and to see how the sharks interacted. Then we also had baited remote cameras, which you put basically fish, which you smush up so it's nice and tasty for the sharks on the end of a long pole. And then you drop that down and either floats or sits on the bottom and that sits there for about an hour. And then because it's got the, the bait on the front of it, it, att it attracts the sharks. And so you see the sharks and how they interact with each other when we're not there. That's so exciting. Yeah. And we also did some tagging, acoustic tagging, which is sort of like putting a Fitbit on a shark. And then we have, <laughs> yeah, then we have receivers, which are like Wi-Fi. And as the shark goes up to the Wi-Fi, it pings. And so we know where they are. So we did a bit of that to see exactly where they're traveling and what they're doing. And we just take some fish as well. So we can see how the ecosystem in a very, a very small part of it, how they interact with each other when we're not there blowing bubbles. Have they ever surprised you with their behavior? Oh, absolutely. I was part of a team that was taking tiger sharks off 
Ningaloo, which is off Western Australia here. And we expected them all just to go north as they normally would being warm water, but one went south and went straight down to the bite. There's always that one guy that does something <laughs> you're just not quite prepared for. And why do they do, like, why do they do that? Do you think? There's just so much we don't know. We're still learning things every day. And thank goodness for that. Otherwise you'd be out of work. I know. Absolutely. There's something that one of the particle team members wants me to ask about, and it's called tonic immobility. Yes. What is it? Tonic immobility is the capacity for sharks when you turn them upside down, they go into a state of immobility as it was. They sort of, you don't want to say comatose, they just sort of go into a deep sleep as it was. Why is that like evolutionary wise? Do we know why it happens? It's something I've been thinking about and I don't have a very great answer for you, I'm afraid. Maybe one of your audience would. It seems to be why would they go upside down naturally? Mm. Unless it's, I don't think it's anything to do with mating. People are going to have to flip a bunch of sharks to find <laughs> out. Uh, yeah, well, it's not ideal because they can also sort of stop breathing as well. Oh. <laughs> so don't, don't go do flipping it? sharks. No. Have you ever had to do it? Um, not myself, no. The work I've done with shark tagging, we've sort of brought them up to the boat and done it that way. When you meet people, what's the reaction when you say that you work with sharks? It tends to be polarised. It's either that is amazing or why on earth would you do that? I think mm. my parents and my family have gone through both of those. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, why don't you study whale sharks? I don't have teeth. <laughs> or the small little baby ones that you can keep in a tank. Oh. So, yeah, and it's surprising. I've actually have been asked, how did you get into it? A lot of people do say I wanted to be a marine biologist, but then I decided not to. There's quite a few people that say that. Yeah, and some people... Our parents as well are saying, oh, my son or daughter would like to do this. Would you have a chat to them? So it depends. It's definitely a variety of different things. Most people are interested in sharks, but whether that comes from a desire to learn more about them, to avoid them or to see more of them tends to depend on the person. Hmm. What do you think are some of the misconceptions people have of your career or maybe of the industry or maybe even of sharks? Feel free to take this whichever way you would like. But Misconceptions about sharks and working with them. Mm. Um, I would say, well, as we discussed before, it would be the fact that you spend all day every day scuba diving, living on a coral reef and having a great time in the ocean as there's a lot more time that's spent analysing the data, not necessarily interacting with the animals. Also, I'd say some people think that there's only one path that you have mm. to do a PhD or go that way, but there's a lot of different ways you can do it. It's not everyone working in the industry goes through university. Some people are technicians that do help with the field work and set things up that side. A lot of people do policy in government, make sure that we're protecting them, that marine parks are where they should be and things like that. There's a lot of different, different avenues you can take.
I would like to ask for your best fun fact. And to be honest, I've already learned so much already by talking <laughs> to you. I'm expecting big things, so no pressure. No pressure. How can I live up to that? I do have, don't forget you're talking to a shark geek. So what I think is a fun yeah. fact may or may not be. But right, good test. What do sharks and trees have in common? Oh, they're big. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I didn't think of that. Big at all. Actually, the way that we age sharks is by rings on their vertebrae. Oh. Yeah, I actually did some research on that for my honours research, for my honours project I did earlier. And it depends, again, on the species. Sometimes they're laid annually, so every year they'll have a new ring, but sometimes it's biannually, and these are things that we're still figuring out as well. And so you can actually age sharks by looking at the number of rings on their vertebrae. Unfortunately, there's only one way to get vertebrae oh. and it's not really good for the fish. Yes, that makes sense. Is that a fun and fact for you? That is definitely a fun fact. Although now I have follow-up <laughs> follow questions. So the rings on the vertebrae, what are they? Is that because they're like growth rings? Yes. Sharks are something that I can't say. Caliginous. They, oh, yes. <laughs> they contract these. They have cartilage for their vertebrae, for their bones, unlike us. And so this is sort of laid down. They have their artery that goes along their spinal column, along their vertebral column. And then they also have the vertebrae, which grows from a center uh, birth ring, as it was, and then it grows out as they get bigger. Their vertebrae gets bigger huh. as well. That's, yeah, okay. I, I really would never have guessed that. It really is like a tree. Then my job here is done. <laughs> can tell I, I did a whole year looking at the less exciting side of it about the structure of the vertebrae and of I think about 26 different species and how it all holds it together that's sort of more visual yeah. unless we're a podcast and it's still and you still kept going studying sharks even after that yes to be honest the reason I switched I, I got offered a PhD in that but for me, it was too much. Every single shark I saw, I, I was taking the vertebrae, which got a bit it's wearing. Yes, yeah. that's the word for it. It was hard. And after a while, it, I realized it wasn't an avenue I, I wanted to take. I prefer filming them. Oh, it's so great. Yeah. Where do you hope your career goes from here? You're so close to finishing your PhD. <laughs> Employment. <laughs> um, I really enjoy the research and I love that side of it. And I enjoy the communication side of it as well as, I don't know, I love a chat. You may or may not be able to tell. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'd really like to combine the two in a way that allows education, so to, sort of doing the research and then sharing it in live time as well. These are things that I'm still trying to figure out exactly what, how it would work. So next, after you've done a PhD, there's something that called a postdoctorate, which you do more research. So I'd like to do that. And they tend to be one to three year sort of contracts where you sort of change between laboratories or between projects. So I'd like to do that and keep looking at, especially these oceanic sharks. I study oceanic white tips and they've just been declared critically endangered. Goodness. And blue sharks, the ones that are out in the big blue, and we don't know that much about them. Mako sharks are Ferraris of the ocean. So <laughs> I'd love to learn more about them and basically pass that knowledge on as well.
I really like that. And after today, hearing so much more, I think it's safe to say that it's going to be a lot more to find out. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Particle Podcast. You can find more of our content on all of the socials as well as at particle.scitech.org.au. This episode, as always, was made in the vibrant science hub that is Western Australia and Particle is powered by SciTech.